0: I'm Marty Moss Welcome to The Connection. We live in a country that prizes superstars, geniuses, and child prodigies above just about everything and everyone else. Most of us believe that achievement is the result of the unique set of skills a person is born with. While that's true for some, our guest Adam Grant says that much of what we think about success is wrong, that while you and I are not Coco Gough or Yo-Yo Ma or Stephen King or Lionel Messi, for that matter, we all have untapped talents. He writes in his new book, Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things, that progress depends more on how well you learn and how much you grow, not how hard you work or... How smart you are. Adam Grant spends a lot of time debunking and deconstructing perfectionism. Perfectionists, he says, obsess about insignificant details, avoid taking risks, and don't learn from their mistakes. On the other hand, it's better to make mistakes, tackle challenging tasks, ask for advice, and be kind kindness, it turns out, is correlated with success. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist at the Wharton School. He's written several other books, including Think Again, Option B, Originals, and Give and Take. Adam Grant, a great pleasure. Nice to have you with us on The Connection.
1: So glad to be here. Thanks, Marty.
0: You're very welcome. You know, I looked at that word potential in the title of your book, and I said, oh no. You know, here's a book about criticism. I remember being not a particularly good student, being told, Marty, you don't live up to your potential. You don't work hard enough. You don't pay attention in class. You don't do your homework. How do you want to reclaim or redefine potential?
1: People said those things to you?
0: In a manner of speaking, yes. Wow.
1: I think we it's need It's a s- loaded
0: word in, in, in my life experience. I
1: had no idea. Well, I, OK, let's, let's rethink that then. OK. To me, potential is a capacity for growth. We all have capacity for growth, but sometimes it's invisible to us, and sometimes it's invisible to the people around us. And I think when we reframe it that way, it actually becomes empowering instead of dispiriting.
0: But I wonder, maybe I'm older than you, you know, grew up in the 50s and 60s, whether, especially in school, it was, you know, sit at a desk, do your homework. Um, Everything was very kind of rote and, and put in front of us.
1: Well, that's actually gotten worse over time. So in the U.S., kindergartens become more like first grade. Uh, Kids are sitting at desks longer and longer. Uh, They're doing drills to learn how to spell and do basic math. Um, And that turns out to do them a disservice. It doesn't cultivate a joy of learning, which ultimately is a better predictor of their growth and success than whether they've mastered all their multiplication facts at age five.
0: Why? And I mentioned this in my introduction. Why do we get achievement and success wrong? Why don't we understand that?
1: I think part of it comes from the fact that when we see greatness, we assume that the people who embody it must be cut from a a different cloth. Um, You know, you watch a a four-year-old play a Mozart sonata and you, you say, that's not me. I could never be capable of that. But so often when we look at adult achievement, we make the same mistake and we think, well, that person must have always been great. And empirically, it's just not true. If you look at the evidence, you cannot predict where people will end up from where they start.
0: Do you think it's also because we're this highly individualistic country, so we, we put all this pressure and premium on individual success?
1: I, th- I think that's a, a contributing factor. And I think if you add to the individualism, the idea that many people want to believe we're we're living in a meritocratic world. Well, if success is driven by natural talent, then we don't have to hold ourselves responsible for the doors we've closed on people who didn't seem to have it. We don't have to do anything to create opportunity for people who are denied it.
0: Some people, though, do have natural talent. I'm a, I'm a tennis player, and I watched Serena Williams now. I watch Coco Golf. And as hard as I would work, as much as I would play, I will never come even close to what they're capable of. And they seem to have, obviously, hard work, but they also have natural talent.
1: Yeah, of course. Everybody starts at a different point, and there's no denying that. I think the mistake we make, though, is we assume that we can figure out what our slope, our trajectory is going to look like from that beginning level of talent. And you can see this in the chess data really clearly. So we we think of chess as a game of genius. There are certain kids who are prodigies that are going to go on to be the searching for Bobby Fischer or Queen's Gambit sort of superheroes, right? Right. And those are the grandmasters. Well, guess what? If you look at the data... Um, intelligence predicts performance among novice chess players and also among kids. But if you look at more experienced players and adults, your IQ is almost irrelevant to your chess prowess. Oh. It's much more about how hard you work, how, how well you learn, um, and your motivation to get better. And that's really, for me, Marty, what Hidden Potential is all about. It's about saying you can improve at improving wherever you are now.
0: Well, let's talk about chess because you begin your book talking about this amazing chess team that took on some of the really elite players and beat them.
1: I, I love this story of the it's Raging Rooks. It's a great
0: Rooks. story. Yes. Raging Rooks are their name, just so people know. Yeah.
1: yeah, they're a group of middle schoolers. They're poor racial minorities in Harlem, and nobody sees potential in them. Uh, some of them have never played chess before. One of them was taught the game in a park by a drug dealer. And they have to go up against these ritzy private schools like Dalton that basically have the chess equivalent of an Olympic training center. Chess lessons for kindergartners, then the most promising kids get funneled into private tutoring in first grade, and they have years of practice under their belts. So they should win. But the Raging Rooks have a secret weapon. They have a coach, Maurice Ashley, yeah. who, Amazing. I mean, just a master at, at not only recognizing, but also unlocking hidden potential. And one of the things that Maurice does is he spends a lot of time not just teaching them the cognitive skills to, to master a checkmate, but building their character skills, teaching them to be disciplined and determined um, when they run into roadblocks and obstacles, teaching them to be proactive and anticipating uh, what their opponent might do, training them to be pro-social in coaching each other after a game and trying to improve each other's skills. And ultimately, this catapults them to the national championship.
0: Well, and even beyond that, you you followed up on some of these young people, and they've you know they've done pretty well in life.
1: They have gone on to do much greater things. Uh, you've got one of the Raging Rooks alums uh, was uh, helping to run one of the largest investments uh, investment funds in the country. Another uh, is an award winning filmmaker and composer with multiple master's degrees. Another is a founder of a software and cloud solutions company. Wow. Um, these many of them transcended their circumstances, and they all credit it. Not, again, to the cognitive skills they learned, but the character skills that they were able to apply far beyond chess.
0: Not all of us are lucky to have a coach like that. And I think of other disadvantaged students. I mean, not everyone starts at at the same place. And what you have to overcome as a disadvantaged person to achieve anything, especially in this country.
1: I think it's an uphill battle. make it really tough. Yeah, for too many people. Um, And what the evidence suggests is that the the character skills that many of us are supposed to learn from our parents and from our kindergarten teachers become even more important if you grow up with disadvantage. So, you know, if you're a if you're a relatively privileged kid, um, it's helpful to have discipline and determination. If you're a kid who's got the odds stacked against you, um, you may not survive without those qualities.
0: You describe uh, it was a kindergarten in Tennessee, where they instituted some, some changes in how they approached teaching these young children. What did they do, and what did they find?
1: Well, originally, um, these experiments were designed to shrink classes and test whether smaller classes were actually better for kids learning, um, and this was done in a lot of poor schools in Tennessee. But an economist Raj Chetty led a team to say, wait a minute, they've also randomly assigned kids to different classrooms, which means we can study the effect of kindergarten teachers' experience on your later success." And it turned out this is this is mind boggling it is that we can predict how much money you earn in your twenties from the number of years of experience that your kindergarten teacher had
0: the number of years so if your kindergarten teacher was a first time teacher versus say twenty years on the job you can you can find in the data the results, the different results
1: yeah, if your kindergarten teacher had more years of experience under her or his belt. Uh, you're more likely to graduate from college, and you also end up with higher income. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was because those experienced kindergarten teachers were brilliant at teaching math and reading, and they gave kids an edge. And it was true that kids got a temporary edge from those experienced teachers Mm -hmm. and their ability to read and and do math. But where they got a lasting and more important edge was in the character skills, again, not the cognitive skills. The experienced kindergarten teachers were better at teaching kids to be disciplined and determined, Mm -hmm. to be proactive and pro-social. And ultimately, those character skills were about two and a half times more powerful than math and reading skills when it came to predicting later income.
0: You've used the word character several times, and you, you write a lot about character in this book. How do you define it? And, and you also compare it to what we call personality. How do, you, how do you see character?
1: I've had to redefine it. So I think about personality as your tendency, not your destiny. Um, mm-hmm. But character is how you show up on a hard day. Personality might be how you show up on a typical day. And when most people think about the character that it takes to, you know, to succeed when when you're really struggling, most people think it's a set of virtues. That's how Aristotle talked about it. Um, I've had to really rethink that Um, in two decades as a social scientist. What I've learned is that character is not so much a matter of will as it is a matter of skill. It takes knowledge to figure out how to be disciplined and determined when you're facing temptation. Uh, If you go back to the Raging Rooks, for example. Um, they are growing up in an area where drugs and gangs are rampant. And it's not so easy just to say, "Ah, I'm going to ignore that and show up to chess practice this morning. You have to make
0: decisions, right?
1: Repeated decisions. And those decisions are are not just willpower, they're skill power. So let's break this down. Um, Remember the marshmallow experiment?
0: Oh, I do. Infamous, is it not?
1: Uh, It is. So in the original marshmallow studies, uh, what Walter, Michelle, and colleagues showed was that if you could resist the allure of one marshmallow now to get two later, uh, you did better on the SAT a decade later. And, and this
0: was with four-year-olds, right?
1: Yeah, with, with preschoolers. And it's it's been replicated a bunch of times. Now, what's interesting about this is I always looked at those kids who were able to resist the, the one marshmallow for two later as you know having superhuman willpower and self-control. It turns out, though, what they have are just strategies. This is character skills. Uh, if you watch the videos of the original kids, you'll see one of them actually turns the marshmallow into a ball and starts <laughs> bouncing it. I love and that. at that point, you don't want to eat it anymore, no, right? exactly. Uh, there are other kids who, who actually hide the marshmallow or they throw it behind them.
0: So they have to look at it, Exactly.
1: Right? And th- those are basic character skills in action saying, I don't want to have to use my willpower for the next 15 minutes. So I'm going to find a way to make this situation less tempting. And those are the kinds of skills that allow people to marshal character.
0: About a minute before our first break here, I was thinking, as you wrote so much about character, like, what is the difference between character and personality? And I felt like character is what you do when no one is looking. And maybe that picks up on this marshmallow study, sort of how you behave, what you do, how you treat others, the decisions you make when you think no one is actually watching you.
1: I think that's a very good way of capturing it.
0: Because it's, it, it, it comes from yourself, right?
1: That's right. And it's, it's done without concern for image. So the, the question is not, who do I want to appear to be? But right. rather, who do I want to become?
0: And personality, as you say, are these are the traits, are the things how we might describe somebody?
1: Yeah, when I, when I think about personality, I'm often thinking about traits like, are you more of an introvert or an extrovert? Um, do you tend to be very conscientious and organized or maybe a little bit more spontaneous, playful, and occasionally procrastinating? What character skills allow you to do is transcend your traits in order to live by your principles. So if you're a chronic procrastinator, Do you still deliver on a deadline when somebody you care about is counting on you? If so, you do that by virtue of your character skills.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we will take that very short break and then get back to our conversation with Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist, teaches at the Wharton School here in Philadelphia. He's written several books, and the most recent one, the one we're talking about, is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. We're going to talk after this very short break about perfectionism and Adam Grant's own struggles with perfectionism. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at penmedicineorg slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next?
0: You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Now, most of us are not going to be Olympic athletes or win a Pulitzer Prize, but we all have talents. And our guest today is organizational psychologist Adam Grant. And we are talking about that, including his new book called Hidden Potential. Let me read from this book, and I do want to spend some time talking about perfectionism, something I think you know from personal experience, but let me read what you wrote about your mom. You said, when I was growing up, my mom often said that no matter what grades I got in school, as long as I did my best, she'd be proud of me. Then she added, but if you don't get an A, I'll know you didn't do your best. Then you go on to write, she said it with a smile, but I took it seriously. I shouldn't settle for anything less than perfect. That is a huge burden, I mean, for anyone to have, it's to be bur- perfect.
1: It's, oh, it's, it's an impossible standard. It was also extremely motivating. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but I think it led to some misery and actually limited my progress in ways that I did not anticipate.
0: Well, in fact, you say when, when people are so focused on, on doing something perfectly, they don't take risks. They don't learn from mistakes. I mean, that there, there are consequences for something like that.
1: After reading decades of research on perfectionism, I've come to believe that if it were a medication, it would come with a warning label. It would say, warning, may cause stunted growth. Because if your goal is to be perfect, you don't want to try anything where you might fail. And that means you don't take on new challenges. You do things that you know you're already going to excel at, and you basically narrow your own comfort zone over time.
0: I mean, you're beating yourself up all the time because who can be perfect?
1: Constantly. It's a recipe for burnout and for rumination.
0: Well, but interestingly, you, maybe this is part of your, your quest to be perfect, you worked on diving skills. I mean, when you began, you didn't have much to show for it.
1: I was terrible.
0: You were terrible, but you became an extremely good diver.
1: Not as good as I wanted to be. But well, okay,
0: well, go Better ahead. than
1: I thought I could be. Uh, I. It was very clear I did not have much talent as a diver. Um, I, my teammates called me Frankenstein because I didn't even bend my knees when I walked.
0: Oh, uh, I, up up the uh, on the diving board? Yeah, when
1: I did my approach to the end of the board. Like
0: like uh, walking the gangplank in exactly, a way? Exactly,
1: exactly. Um, I didn't jump very high. I wasn't very flexible. Um, <clears throat> I didn't spin fast. I was really missing a lot of the basic tools that you're looking for in a diver. I was lucky to have a coach, Eric Best, who said to me, I will never cut a diver who wants to be here. And so I, I showed up at practice, and I was obsessed with trying to do perfect dives. And it really hindered me because – as I walked on the board, as soon as I got a little bit off balance, I would say, well, I, it, it, it's not going to be good now. I, no way this is going to get anywhere near perfect. So I would start over. Uh, and this, this pattern of balking at the end of the board and not even taking off to do my dive would waste half of my practice. Wow. Not good for my growth.
0: But you did. I mean, you had a good coach. Here's another coach that helped someone overcome something.
1: One of the things that Eric did for me is he sat me down one day and he said, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect 10. And I'm like, wait, are you telling me that the Olympic announcers have been lying to us all these years? What what do they mean when they say perfect 10s? And he said, it's a misnomer. In the rule book, a 10 is for excellent, not for perfect. And what that made me realize is even the best divers in the world doing their best dive, uh, when they get straight 10s, there are still flaws in them. They're never going to be perfect. And it allowed me to say, okay, let's find a score that's reasonable for me. So Eric would sit me down and he'd say, okay, we're doing a basic front-eye pike here. We're targeting sevens. And once you get a seven, we're going to move on instead of you wanting to do 100 of that dive and never practicing your harder dives that are ultimately going to score you more points because they're a higher degree of difficulty. When you're working on improving your full-twisting two-and-a-half, where you do two flips, a 360 turn, and then a dive, we're going to be happy with force. And once you hit that bar, that's a sign of progress. And Marty, I have to tell you, I have treated almost every project I've done since, um, like diving, where I've said when I write a book, I'm aiming for a nine. Hmm. I'm going to pour a couple years of my work life into it. Hopefully, a lot of people are going to read it. Uh, I want it to reflect the best I'm capable of at that time. When I write a social media post... I am not aiming for nines. I'm usually shooting for about a six and a half, which I think is right above getting canceled.
0: Right, right. But I wonder whether you then began to enjoy diving, you know, once the pressure was off, to do it perfectly.
1: I started to enjoy it a lot more because I was able to come out of practice every day and say, instead of, you know, my my usual approach, which was beating myself up for the the things that I did wrong, I was able to focus on the areas where I got better and feel like I I was moving forward, it did, though, I felt like the challenge I ran into was, and this is true for all of us as humans, mm-hmm. every time you achieve something new, your expectations tend to, tend to rise with your accomplishments. And that makes it really difficult to appreciate and enjoy your success or, or feel proud of it. And one of the things I, I, I learned too late, which I wish somebody had explained to me earlier, was uh. when you can't appreciate your current success, you should get in touch with your past self. Because the me five years ago would have been blown away by what I could do as a diver, And I've tried to take that to heart. So when I release a book now to say, yeah, now I take it for granted. I'm a writer. That's what we do. We write books. But if the 15 years ago me knew that I had one book, let alone multiple, that there were people interested in talking to me about it, um, that version of me would have been overjoyed. And that makes it a lot Hmm. easier to savor and be proud of your accomplishments.
0: Remember that past self and who they were and what they wanted, what they thought they could accomplish. Exactly. Exactly. You talk about, and, and this is also in the book as well, about um, in terms of potential, is getting out of your comfort zone, trying something new, something unfamiliar. What does that do for us?
1: It basically forces us to take on bigger challenges, which ultimately lead to bigger growth. Uh, there's some research with people doing, um, they're learning to do improv comedy. And Tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah some of them are. i tried
0: it. Yeah, it's hard. How did it go? Uh, it's hard. I mean, it, it's hard to know. All I know is that um, I did it.
1: <laughs> I think that counts as progress. I think it does. So you take people to a new improv class, and I thought the way to help them improve would be to give them a, a learning goal. Right. Don't worry about your image. Focus on you know just getting better and improving as much as you can. Well, the people who are randomly assigned to have a goal of learning actually did not improve as much as the ones who were told to deliberately make themselves uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: um, Because those people took bigger risks and they ultimately stretched themselves beyond their strengths. And I've, I've actually started to wonder if discomfort should be a goal because it ultimately fuels growth.
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, is, the, is it then making the thing that's uncomfortable comfortable or just being willing to live with the discomfort of feeling like you're, you know, you look terrible or you're making a fool of yourself or whatever?
1: I think we want a little of both. Yeah. I don't want people to be trapped in, you know, in feeling extremely uncomfortable all the time. I do want to normalize discomfort and say if you never feel uncomfortable, you are probably not challenging yourself enough.
0: I think of courage too. I mean it, it takes courage to to put yourself into difficult and new and unfamiliar circumstances.
1: It does. And I, I think one of the places where I, I really gained a new perspective on courage was um with these polyglots that I wrote about. These incredible language learners who, uh, two of them, um, Sarah Maria and Benny, were told they would never learn a foreign language. They both struggled mightily in school and now can speak a dozen each. How? How? What they do is they, they realize part of this, I think, is an indictment of, of Western education. Uh, part of it was you know, a mistake that they made. But basically, when they were studying their early foreign languages, they wanted to wait until they had all the, the words mastered oh. in order to speak it because they didn't want to embarrass themselves. They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to feel stupid. Stumbling through a sentence, you make a fool of yourself. And they realized that if they started speaking from day one, that then they would actually start to internalize the language as they used it. And that took courage. Right? Benny, would he's a, a professional language hacker. He would go to a foreign country uh, and say, I want to be proficient in three months. And then he would set a goal that he wants to make 200 mistakes a day at minimum. Takes a ton of courage because he's constantly embarrassing himself and committing all kinds of language faux pas. But in doing that, he's practicing using the language. He's getting other people to talk back to him and correct him. He's making the mistakes more memorable. So he actually is able to improve on those things that he's stumbling at. Uh, and that courage allows him to propel his growth at a much faster rate than he would have if he just used the language a little bit.
0: And it's also about conversation and connection. I mean, the thing that happens when people are talking to each other.
1: It's amazing how much of that then provides the encouragement. Um, I, I never really had thought about this, but we talk about how important it is to be encouraged by others. Think about the literal meaning of that. Mm-hmm. Courage is embedded in the word. That's true. And if you're if you're in a foreign country and you're starting to use a language, you have a literal stranger who is going to help you build your confidence to keep going forward.
0: Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's um, Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist. He teaches at the Wharton School, and he's just written a new book. It's called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Speaking of going to a foreign country, I was thinking about that as I, as I was reading your book. Um, and when you get to a foreign country, you don't know anything. You don't know anybody. You don't know where anything is. And the kind of scary adventure of going out and exploring the world and then what you get back for for doing that is, is really extraordinary. I mean, these are memories for for a lifetime.
1: I think in a lot of cases they are. And, you know, this is... This is one of the things that we, we often forget to think about, which is if you think about study abroad programs, as an example, there's a group of psychologists who have studied what happens when you study abroad. And it turns out the, the more different the country you go to is from your own, the more likely it is to expand your mind. But the people who choose to go to those countries are already more open minded to begin with, and so it's a bit of a catch twenty two where in order to get the benefit of you know of expanding your base of experience, you have to be open to that in the first place
0: you know I was thinking too about and and you mentioned education uh, and and you write some about that in in this book comparing us to Finland for instance, but also um you know going from the kind of factory model of education that's what I remember you know having to sit in your desk and, and not look around and just do what the teacher said, to a much more, to a kind of education that really tries to understand a child's strengths and weaknesses. But you raise some questions about that.
1: I do. You do. Uh, well, the solution to the factory model was supposed to be learning styles. Yeah. They became popular in the, in the 1970s in a lot of American schools. They're widespread today. And we have kids that come in and they're told they're either an auditory learner <clears> or a visual learner, or a verbal learner, or a kinesthetic learner. Um, slightly different categories and different models, but the idea is that there's one particular mode of processing information that allows you to learn best. The evidence says that is not true. Really? There are several decades of research that have tested the learning styles theory um, and falsified it over and over and over again. Your supposed learning style is a way that you enjoy learning. It's a preference. But it does not seem to have any bearing on how you learn best. So people who tell you they're an auditory learner, for example, and they like listening to a radio mm-hmm. show or a podcast, um, they might enjoy that more. But they actually don't remember information better when they hear it as opposed to whether, when they're reading
0: it. So do we go back to the 50s, the <laughs> factory style of education? No,
1: what we do is we try to give people a chance to learn important information through multiple media. And if you want to learn something, you, want to, you don't want to limit yourself to just listening or just reading. Um, you also, I would say the most important thing we could do actually is um, we can invite people to teach it. Uh, I think the, the tutor effect is one of the most underappreciated I love this. findings in psychology. Go ahead. Go ahead. So the, the basic finding is when, when you, um, you give kids an opportunity to be tutored by their peers, the tutors actually learn as much as the students being tutored. Uh, and this is, a, I think, a well-known finding that in part helps to explain why firstborn kids have a slight edge on cognitive tests over laterborns Because borns,
0: they're teaching their younger siblings? Their younger
1: siblings, siblings. exactly. Um, it's a small effect, by the way. But um, what we know about teaching more generally is that it, it's often the most effective way to learn something because you understand it better after you've, you've you've explained it to someone else. And also, you remember it better when you've had to retrieve it to make sense mm-hmm. of it with someone else. And so... If I, were, if I were going to replace learning styles, I would say, OK, let's all go through the experience of listening, of reading, of acting it out, and then let's explain it to another student who hasn't learned it yet. And that's mm-hmm. when we really master it.
0: So not only does the student who hasn't learned it yet hopefully learn more, as the teacher, you learn as well. That's the goal. That's the goal. You, I had to laugh when I read about Einstein in your book talking about not being a good teacher. I guess no one could understand what he was saying, but he was maybe too smart to be a teacher?
1: I don't think he was too smart. I think he knew too much to relate uh, to what it was like to be a beginner. I, I always thought it would be amazing to take physics from Einstein, but sure. I then made the mistake of taking an astrophysics class in college from an extremely eminent professor and I could not understand a word of what we covered in that Literally. class. It was, I mean, I was completely lost. And I don't, I'd been strong in physics up to that point. And I, what I ultimately realized, um, not in the moment, but later, was this was somebody whose knowledge was so advanced uh, that it was very difficult. Psychologists call it the curse of knowledge. Uh, it was really difficult for them to imagine, well, how, how would I understand this if I was coming to it as a novice? And I think that, that so often, you know, we're, we're told that those who can't do teach. Right. I would modify that and say that those who can do often can't teach the basics,
0: hmm. and and you're talking about the basics, obviously.
1: Yes, I you I would be very happy to take a an advanced course on special or general relativity from Einstein, uh, but when it comes to physics 101, yeah. uh, maybe it's it's just too familiar and it's too automatic at this point for him to be effective.
0: I mentioned that you had compared, and other people have as well, American schools and and Finland schools, but. Um, There's some pretty dramatic differences. Obviously, this is a much smaller country, much more homogeneous, probably less sort of divide between the rich and the poor in Finland as well. But what are the findings?
1: Well, I think we have to be careful when we do this exercise for the reasons that you describe. And so what I wanted to do was, you know, looking at Finland and also Estonia's consistently superior performance in math, reading, and science.
0: This is Um, Estonia. Yeah, Estonia, which
1: actually borrowed a lot of Finland's practices. What I wanted to look at was um, which of these practices have actually been tested in careful experiments and longitudinal studies in the US uh, that then have been you know, imported in Finland or Estonia. And one of the things that I was really struck by is uh, they have student support systems in every school in Finland. What does that mean? What that means is there's a team that's checking in on my progress as a student from the time I'm in kindergarten all the way up. So it's not just my teacher in the classroom. It's also usually a social worker or a psychologist and the school principal looking at, am I getting ahead or am I falling behind in different subjects? And then what they do is they do early intervention. So instead of, you know, at the end of the year, you find out I'm way behind and I have to get held back. And then there's a ton of stigma associated with that. uh, They will immediately refer me for individualized tutoring. And I think by the time they get to high school, roughly 30 percent of Finnish students have gotten personal tutoring in at least one subject. So there's no stigma there, and they want to they want to catch problems early so they can prevent them as opposed to having to try to remediate them later.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And and is it talking to the student or it's just looking at their work to see do they know the material?
1: It's yeah. It's often just looking at their work, tracking their progress, um, and then meeting with them. I think one of the other things they, they do that, that has good evidence behind it is um, they've kind of reversed that. Let's not make kindergarten first grade. Let's make kindergarten more fun. Ah. Um, they have play-based education. Uh, every 45 minutes of instruction is required to have 15 minutes of recess ah. uh, for kindergartners and actually for elementary schoolers across the board. And what that does is it, it cultivates intrinsic motivation. If you study the kids who get the best grades as 16-year-olds, um, one of the best predictors of that is enjoying school at age six. So if we don't make learning fun from the get-go, we, I think, are doing kids a disservice when yeah. it comes to, to building their desire to keep growing.
0: Yeah, hello, right? And these are kids. I wonder, too, and we're, almost, again, almost up on a break here, but you also talk about uh, a teacher staying with a student for a couple of years. I think that happened with you, right?
1: Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't know, but I was a lucky beneficiary of a middle school program where I had the same two core teachers from sixth to eighth grade. And I was, I was stunned when I read the research on this. It's a small effect, but it's been demonstrated in North Carolina, in Indiana, in um, Tennessee, and also in Chile recently. If you have the same teacher for a second year, you actually improve more in math and reading scores over the course of the year.
0: Because they know you?
1: They get to know you better, and it seems that they can then not just be an instructor but also become a coach and a mentor. They can help you, they can help you tap into your hidden potential, essentially.
0: Well, let's take that short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation again. Adam Grant is our guest today on The Connection. Uh, We're talking about all the nuggets in his new book, and the book is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. He's an organizational psychologist, and he's written several other books as well. He's got a couple of podcasts. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at penmedicineorg slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next?
0: This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. And if you're just joining us, uh, Adam Grant is our guest. We're talking about his new book, Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. I'm thinking we were talking before the break about this idea. I There's a name for it when a teacher stays with a child for a couple of years. It's called looping. Looping. I was thinking my first grade teacher, whose name, believe it or not, was Miss Roach. And if you can imagine,
1: <laughs> I see where this is going.
0: If you can imagine what she looked like, she looked rather like uh, that little, uh, and, and she was scary. And I'm not sure I learned very much in first grade. I would have been terrified if she had been my second grade teacher as well. How do we we deal with that? Well, I
1: I, I think a lot of parents have this concern. Like, What if my kid gets stuck with Professor Snape or Miss Viola Swamp? (laughs) Interestingly, what the research shows is that looping is actually more beneficial when teachers are struggling. That having the same students actually helps them grow with their students as opposed to having to start over from scratch with a new group. But I wouldn't suggest that anybody should be stuck with a, a, a terrible, repeat, teacher. terrible teacher. And this is, I think, one of the other things we can learn from Finland and Estonia is they have professionalized education. They require teachers to have a master's degree. They train them in evidence. They invite them to stay up to date on the latest research. And they give them the autonomy to put their knowledge into practice, just like we do medical professionals mm. and lawyers. So I think there's a lot to be learned there.
0: I mean, we don't, we don't value education or educators very much in this country.
1: Not enough. Not enough. I'm biased as an educator, but I think particularly early childhood and primary education, we underinvest in dramatically.
0: Let me ask you about a couple of other things. You say, um, don't ask for feedback. Ask for advice. Why?
1: Well, it turns out that when you ask for feedback, you end up getting a bunch of cheerleaders and critics. The cheerleaders basically celebrate your best self, and the critics attack your worst self. And that's not that useful. What you want are coaches who see your hidden potential and help you become a better version of yourself. And what research shows is the way you can get people to coach you instead of just cheerleading and criticizing is to ask them for advice, which shifts their attention from what you did right or wrong yesterday right. toward what you can do differently tomorrow.
0: I'm almost afraid to quote some of the things that were said to you, Adam, but you included it in your book, you gave a talk at the, uh, was it the US?
1: Oh, with the Inf- Air Force.
0: Yeah. And uh, you were told, uh, I-, I gained nothing from this session, but I trust the instructor that would be you gained useful insight. That was fun. Yeah. I mean it's it's hard, of course, to get criticism. How do you how do you make it helpful?
1: Well, so I wanted to turn some of those Air Force colonels and generals into coaches who were who are not not shy about sharing their criticism in the feedback forums. And I had just taught a four hour session with them where they they. Crucified my performance, and I wanted to quit. But I had another session about a week later, and I had already made the commitment, and I didn't want to back out. So I went to a couple of people who were in the audience, and I said, "What advice do you have for me? What could I do better next time?" Wow! And w- one of the tips I got was to change my introduction. I didn't have time to reinvent four hours of material but I had worked way too hard to try to establish my credentials. I was in my mid-20s. These leaders were twice my age. They had a lot more experience, and I was trying to impress them. And the advice I got was give it up. Oh. Try to connect with them instead. So what I ended up doing was I walked in there and I said, I know what some of you are thinking right now. What could I possibly learn from a professor who's 12 years old? <laughs> they, they did not laugh until <laughs> one of them, whose call sign I think was Sand Dune, piped up and said that's ridiculous you got to be at least 13 <laughs> and then they all cracked up and it changed my relationship with them
0: as so i had a
1: much better session and and afterward the the feedback form said things like although junior in experience he dealt with the evidence in an interesting way and i i, I learned you know not only that it was helpful to try to lead with humility and take myself off a pedestal and, and call out an elephant in the room But also that the very people who are criticizing me, if I ask them the right questions, I could actually learn from them and get them to coach me.
0: But you were asking for help. And so now one feels vulnerable, maybe, you know, in this situation, ashamed of oneself, right, or embarrassed because there you were, right? Here's
1: the thing, though. The people that you deal with every day, they already know what you're bad at. Hmm. You can't hide it from them. So you might as well get credit for having the self-awareness to see it. And the humility and integrity to admit it out loud.
0: How do you see resilience?
1: I've, I've, ch- I guess I've changed my thinking about resilience over the past few years. I used to think about it as the capacity to bounce back. Um, I now see it as the ability to bounce forward, hmm. uh, to to get better after adversity. But I think we should not always expect that, right. and I think that sometimes. People feel like they've bounced back from a, a real setback or obstacle, and they're stagnating at that point. What they don't realize is that resilience is actually a sign of growth if you If you had to put in a lot of hours and blood, sweat, and tears to get back to where you were, uh, you've actually made progress, and we should count that as uh, as success as opposed to just recovery uh,
0: so thinking I'm trying to sort of deconstruct the the, the thinking the bouncing back and the thinking forward. I guess bouncing back means you sort of relive what got you stuck in the first place. Right?
1: Potentially, yes. And the bouncing forward part would be I learned something from this experience that's going to you know, give me new perspective or deeper connections with other people. Um, when psychologists study this, they call it post-traumatic growth. Hmm. And it's the opposite of PTSD. It turns out to be more common than PTSD, actually. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it's possible. And if you can't see it, it's really hard to live it.
0: You also talk about something called harmonious passion, and this has to do with practice, I guess, trying to learn something and the kind of drudgery of of practice. What is harmonious passion?
1: Harmonious passion is is basically practicing because you enjoy it, uh, for for the love of the activity. And it turns out to be a, a nice predictor of whether you become, for example, an elite musician, and it's different from of a lot of, of people's stereotype practice, which is right. it's got to be an obsessive slog that I push myself through. That turns out to be a recipe for burnout. It's also a recipe for something that psychologists call bore out, right. which is one of my favorite terms. You're literally bored out of your mind. Uh, and that understimulation can lead to um, as much stagnation as the overstimulation and overload of just getting exhausted by practicing too hard.
0: So how do you do that? I mean, how do you get out of that rut?
1: Well, I think— what I've learned from the research and also some, some great examples in the book, like Evelyn Glennie, uh, oh, my yeah. favorite I've interviewed per- percussionist. You have?
0: Yeah, years and years ago. She's amazing. Yeah, she's she's, uh, she's hearing impaired. I mean, she's very, Profoundly very deaf. deaf. Yes. And she plays, she's a percussionist.
1: Dozens of different instruments yeah. and is world class at it. Yes. Uh, one of the things I learned from Evelyn, I think she really exemplifies the research, which is instead of forcing herself through a fixed routine, like doing scales over and over again, she said, "That sounds like being a hostage, and that's just going to kill my my joy and my creativity." What she'll do is, when she starts to feel boredom creep in, she will mix things up, and she'll say, "Huh, I wonder if I could harmonize Bach on a snare drum," <laughs> and that that keeps the practice fresh, and it's sustained a you know an extraordinary career over half a century now. Novelty and variety, I think, are keys to harmonious mm. passion.
0: So, sort of when you feel that the boredom or the what's the other word the
1: the bore out or the burnout? The,
0: bur- the Yeah, the burnout or the bore out, then you you know something's wrong, right? And,
1: and that's a sign that you need to shake things up.
0: Right, right. Do you practice what you preach?
1: Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> not always, but I do try to practice what I teach. And, you know, on this one, Marty, I'll tell you, my biggest experience of bore out as a writer is editing. Yeah. It just feels so repetitive and I've already I figured out the aha moment and the study and the story and these little changes to words not that exciting, and it was only after writing this chapter on, you know how practice needs to be more right. playful and we need to figure out how to turn the daily grind into a source of daily joy, that I realized I was not doing that with my own editing work. Hmm. So what did I do? I um, I realized one of my goals was to to bring more imagery into my my writing. I tend to be very abstract and cognitive. And I, I want I want to make sure the narrative comes to life and there's a emotion in my stories and my studies. So, I um I tried to rewrite a paragraph in the voice of Maya Angelou.
0: Oh, you said tried to channel her and then write it as if oh yeah how'd how that work out? Oh, it
1: was it was horrendous. <laughs> like, I, I like deleted it, destroyed the hard drive. We'll never yeah. see the light of day. Yeah. Um, but it was a great exercise sure. because it really gave me a fresh perspective, and I then uh, this has become a habit of mine now. Hmm. When I'm stuck on on bringing you know that vividness into my writing, I'll pick a favorite you know fiction author. Um, recently, I've done John Green and Maggie Smith, and it's it's a great exercise that breaks me from it takes me out of the drudgery.
0: Well, it takes you out of yourself.
1: It does, yes, and it helps me it helps me think in somebody else's voice, which yeah. is not only fun, it's also creative.
0: Let me make a, a a bit of a leap here, but you um, talk about the kind of anxiety and depression that a lot of high schoolers, especially those in some of these elite schools or these schools that are really you know putting pressure on kids to achieve the level of of anxiety and depression is really quite quite scary and maybe even at Penn, where you teach. you it's, see it
1: it's yeah it's it's really bad and worrisome. I think depending on which study you look at students at high achieving schools are somewhere between three and seven times. More depressed and anxious than students are on average. Wow! Uh, and Does I think we—well, it it tells me that we're not doing a good job helping students think about what success means. Uh, I think if if you burn yourself out while trying to achieve your goals, you are not successful. I think even if you achieve your goals and you're not burned out, but you're not happy, yeah. you've also failed. I want to encourage students. I've I've talked with my students about this for years. To redefine success, not just as achieving your goals, but living your values.
0: Which is about character, right? Which
1: is to say, if you think about your core principles in life, if you hit a goal, but it compromises one of your principles, that's a failure, not a success.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the workplace, which is going through a lot of churn and transformation. Um, And I remember certainly early on in the pandemic, for the most part, not Many people had to go to work, we should say that, but a lot of people were able to work from home, and now we're struggling with well, how much, how much in-person, in how much remote. How do you see the workplace changing?
1: We actually did a, a work-life episode on my podcast about this last year on the do's and don'ts in returning to the office, and yeah. the, the guest who I've learned the most from was, was Nick Bloom. Uh, he's a Stanford economist who's been tracking remote work for over a decade and uh, has done the best randomized controlled trials of what happens when we set up a hybrid workplace and let yeah. people work from home part of the time. Nick shows that basically hybrid is not only the future, it's the present. The, the dragging people back to the office is dead. It's basically flatlined for over a year. And I think where we've stabilized is most workplaces, where possible, of course, are uh, expecting people to come in about three days a week mm-hmm. and then work from anywhere the other two. And mm-hmm. what Nick shows is if you do that, uh, you get, on average, higher productivity and performance, uh, more satisfaction and retention without a consistent cost to collaboration. Or relationships well
0: let me pick up on that because there's that whole water we still call a water cooler i don't know you know but this idea they're going to be these spontaneous moments where you're going to bump into a colleague and you're going to come up with this great idea you're shaking your head no no, no. it's a myth it, it, it,
1: this has been studied for decades and there is no evidence that creativity requires spontaneity it requires two things one is unstructured interaction informal conversation we get mm-hmm. that at water coolers we don't informal virtual meetings mm-hmm. And two is interaction with weak ties, not strong ties. People you don't bump into every day who know things that you don't and can open up access to fresh ideas. There's actually been some research showing that if you, if you just pair salespeople up for lunch, so informal, weak ties who don't know each other, right. over the next four months, their individual revenue goes up by 24% if they just have a weekly lunch. Because they end up exchanging ideas and learning things from each other. And so we don't have to wait until you bump into somebody at a water cooler. We can structure unstructured interaction between weak ties.
0: And you can do that online in you little could, boxes? Little... You
1: could pair people up for coffee chats virtually with people who have never interacted before. And if if they get to talking about things that are not on an agenda, um, odds are that that simulates the water cooler pretty well. The thing we lose is is the energy and the sense of connection. Right. Uh, but there's no reason why we can't partially substitute
0: Let me quote something from the very end of your book. And you you came upon this and I thought it was pretty funny about the imposter syndrome you say is essentially a paradox. You write, others believe in you, you don't believe in yourself, yet you believe yourself instead of them, which is the imposter syndrome in a nutshell.
1: Personified. And I I think it's ironic because I I get why people do this. You do know more about yourself than other people know about you. Yes. But you're also not neutral. You're not objective. And that means you have to discount your own opinions of yourself because other people can see you more clearly. They can compare you to others and gauge your abilities more accurately. So what I've started telling people is if multiple people believe in you, it's time to believe them.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's that simple. No, I mean, it isn't that simple. If you if there is that that voice in your head that says you're no good. You, know? you should doubt you that voice just like you doubt
1: yourself. <laughs> Marty, I think you did. Not only did you have potential, but
0: <laughs> I think you've
1: realized some of that potential.
0: Yeah. It's only taken you know de- decades here. Let me squeeze in another question. This is about leadership. Uh, and we talked about work briefly, but... You talk about the the people who are promoted, you know, tend to be, and I'll just quote here, we mistake confidence for competence, certainty for credibility, and quantity for quality. We get stuck following people who dominate the discussion instead of those who elevate. it. And this is kind of who rises to the top of the workplace.
1: This drives me crazy. It's called the babble effect. Uh, we, we like tend babble? To, like literally, babble? the person who babbles the most is the most likely to become the leader. Uh, and I think we need to change that. We can change that by trying to figure out who is the person in the room who actually makes us better, which is mm. you know, usually not the person with the biggest ego who's trying to be the smartest person in the room. It's the one who's focused on elevating the intelligence in the room. And there are a whole bunch of different ways we could look at that, but one of my favorites is to, to ask the question of um, how much smarter did this meeting get because of this person's presence? Oh. Uh, and usually that is not the person who made the killer point. It's the person who asked the best question.
0: Oh, so asking questions. Sort of reveals, obviously, well, it's moving the conversation along, too, right?
1: It is. It's modeling behavior that allows other people to be curious and learn. It's also a chance then to reframe, well, what are we trying to accomplish here? Uh, and how do we best get there?
0: Well, we're going to leave it there. Um, Adam Grant, thank you once again for joining us uh, In Conversation, different show, same place. Thanks so much.
1: Honored to be here. Thanks, Marty.
0: You're very welcome. And again, Adam Grant's new book is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. He's also the author of uh, several other books, which I have here, one called Think Again, Option B, Originals and Give and Take. He's an organizational psychologist at the Wharton School, which is here in Philadelphia. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler are the producers of the program. I'm Marty Moss Cowain. Thank you so much for joining us.